Good day, and thank you for standing by. Welcome to the Gilead Sciences second quarter 2021 earnings conference call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. Please be advised that today's conference is being recorded. If you require any further assistance, please press star 0. I would now like to hand the conference over to your speaker today, Jackie Ross, VP Investor Relations. Please go ahead. Thank you, Joelle, and good afternoon, everyone. Just after market closed today, we issued a press release with earnings results for the second quarter of 2021. The press release, slides, and supplementary data are available on the investors section of our website at gilead.com. The speakers on today's call will be our Chairman and Chief Executive Officer, Daniel O'Day, our Chief Commercial Officer, Joanna Mercier, our Chief Medical Officer, Murdad Parsi, and our Chief Financial Officer, Andrew Dickinson. After that, we'll open up the call to Q&A, where the team will be joined by Christy Shaw, the Chief Executive Officer of KITE. Before we get started, let me remind you that we will be making forward-looking statements, including those related to the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on Gilead's business, financial condition and results of operations, plans and expectations with respect to products, product candidates, corporate strategy, financial projections and the use of capital, and 2021 financial guidance, all of which involve certain assumptions, risks, and uncertainties that are beyond our control and could cause actual results to differ materially from these statements. A description of these risks can be found in the earnings press release and our latest SEC disclosure documents. All forward-looking statements are based on information currently available to Gilead, and Gilead assumes no obligation to update any such forward-looking statements. Non-GAAP financial measures will be used to help you understand the company's underlying business performance. The GAAP to non-GAAP reconciliations are provided in the earnings press release, in our supplementary data sheet, as well as on the Gilead website. I will now turn the call over to Dan. Thank you, Jackie, and good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for taking the time to join us here today. We're pleased to provide you with an update on our second quarter, where we delivered solid financial performance and significant progress in our increasingly diverse pipeline. 2021 is an important year for our pipeline, and we're very encouraged by the milestones we've achieved for therapies that are potentially transformative for Gilead and for patients. All of this reinforces our confidence in our strategic direction. I want to take this opportunity to thank our global community of Gilead and Kite employees who consistently go above and beyond to drive progress with resilience and dedication. Different parts of the world are riding the ebb and flow of COVID-19 cases at various times. And while the vaccines give us hope and optimism, we are still very much living with the pandemic. Remdesivir continues to play an important role in fighting the virus and has now been used to treat an estimated 7 million hospitalized patients worldwide. Turning to the main highlights of the quarter on slide four, the second quarter was a solid quarter overall. The Clary sales of $829 million were once again higher than anticipated, offsetting the lingering impact of the pandemic, particularly on HIV treatment. In light of this pandemic impact, Victarvi's performance is quite encouraging. Revenue for the quarter was $2 billion U.S. dollars, up 24%, or $390 million from the same quarter last year. This more than offset the $322 million headwind associated with the impact of the Truvada and Atripla LOEs. Much of that headwind is now, of course, behind us. Overall, our share of the HIV treatment market held steady quarter over quarter and our PrEP share remains steady even with generic entries. These dynamics give us confidence that the underlying demand for our HIV products remains strong and positions us well for growth as the overall HIV market recovery gains momentum. Moving to our clinical pipeline, 2021 is a catalyst-heavy year for Gilead, and we've delivered all of our key first-half pipeline commitments. Among other milestones, we shared top-line data from the highly anticipated Zuma 7 trial, where Yaskarta improved event-free survival for second-line large B-cell lymphoma, or LBCL, patients by 60% compared to the standard of care. This is truly a landmark trial 
the first and largest reported phase three trial readout that demonstrates the efficacy and safety of cell therapy, and we are excited by the opportunity to bring the potential benefits of cell therapy to patients in earlier lines. We shared positive phase three data from MIR 301, which will help support our anticipated BLA filing for Hepcludix for HDV in the U.S. later this year. And we submitted our NDA for use of lenacapavir in the heavily treatment experienced population with multi-drug resistance. This filing was based on data from the Phase 2-3 Capella study presented earlier this month. We also shared strong lenacapavir data from the Phase 2 Calibrate study in HIV treatment, which will be used to inform our broader lenacapavir efforts. Our partner, ARCUS, provided an interim update from ARC-7 that supports the continuation of both ARC-7 and ARC-10 trials for their antitytic candidate, Domvanilumab. Lastly, on slide four, we're beginning to see the positive impact of our strategy, which we introduced early last year. The business is diversifying across indications and therapies. In particular, we are seeing cell therapy and Trodelvi contribute to growth and expect they will be key growth drivers for Gilead. While we build out the oncology business, we remain focused and committed on ensuring the long-term competitive positioning of our virology portfolio. Next, on slide five, we highlighted our pipeline execution so far this year, and I'd like to thank all those who helped us to deliver on this ambitious agenda, including our employees, the people who participated in the studies, our partners, and the study investigators. As we look ahead to the rest of the year, our target milestones include a progression-free survival or PFS readout in our event-driven Phase 3 Tropics 2 study evaluating Trodelvi in hormone receptor HER2 positive negative metastatic breast cancer. A Phase 1B readout from agrolimab and myelodysplastic syndrome, or MDS. Depending on the data, timing, and results, this could result in a BLA submission for accelerated approval. And initiation of the potential Phase 3 lenacapavir and aslatrovir long-acting oral combination. As you know, this is in collaboration with Merck, and the development and formulation work remains on track. We look forward to updating you next quarter about the additional milestone progress. We understand that continued strong and consistent pipeline execution is critical to the extending the virology business and expanding further into oncology. We believe our current and pipeline therapies can address significant unmet medical needs. We are very encouraged by the progress Gilly and Kite are making. We are well on our way in our journey to expand and diversify in the new therapeutic areas, and we are already seeing the evolution of both our pipeline and commercial portfolio. With that, I'll hand over to Joanna, who will share an update on our commercial performance for the second quarter. Thanks, Dan, and good afternoon, everyone. Starting on slide seven, total product sales of $6.2 billion were up 21% year-over-year, primarily reflecting Viclary, which was not a contributor to revenue in the second quarter of 2020. On slide eight, Viclary's second quarter revenues of $829 million declined sequentially, reflecting the impact of higher vaccination rates and lower infection and hospitalization in many regions. While hospitalizations trended lower in the second quarter, Viclary remained the therapy of choice in three out of five patients hospitalized with COVID-19. We estimate that since the launch in May 2020, roughly 7 million patients globally have been treated with remdesivir. It's truly remarkable and encouraging to see how remdesivir continues to play such a key role in fighting this global pandemic. Excluding Veclary, total product sales of $5.3 billion were up 5% year-over-year. We saw growth in cell therapy and HCV, in addition to new revenue contributions from Tudelvi and, more modestly, Hepcludex for HDV. Additionally, other product revenues of $291 million grew 20% year-over-year, driven by increased demand for Ambazone outside of the U.S. to treat mucormycosis, which has seen a rise in incidence in patients hospitalized with COVID-19. Sequentially, we saw 9% growth for total product sales excluding Veclary, primarily driven by growth in Victarvi. Moving to slide 9, HIV product sales were $3.9 billion, up 8% sequentially, and down 2% year-over-year. 
Compared to the second quarter of 2020, total HIV revenue reflected strong Victarvi growth that more than offset the $322 million lower revenue from Truvada and Atripla following their loss of exclusivity. Compared to last quarter, HIV grew $288 million, reflecting customary seasonal inventory dynamics and growing demand for treatment. Victarvi revenue of $2 billion was up 24% year-over-year and 9% sequentially, with quarter-over-quarter growth primarily driven by increased demand. Victarvi remains the number one prescribed therapy in the U.S. across naive, switch, and continuing patients, and remains number one in naive across all EU5 countries. Approximately 70% of switches from both Gilead and non-Gilead regimens result in incremental revenue. Overall, and despite the ongoing impact of the pandemic, Victarvi continues to gain market share with 1% share growth versus last quarter in both the U.S. as well as the EU5. Discovi revenues of $435 million grew 21% sequentially due to modest improvement in the demand for PrEP and more favorable inventory and pricing dynamics that we typically see in the second quarter relative to the first. As we highlighted in prior quarters, we've been working with payers to ensure patients continue to have access to Discovi in light of entry of generic alternatives for Truvada. We're really pleased to see the strong sequential growth in Discovi, and we continue to maintain mid-40% share despite generic impacts. Year over year, Discovi grew 4%, largely due to higher demand for PrEP. And overall, PrEP demand is showing signs of recovery and is expected to continue to improve as pandemic restrictions phase out. Earlier this month, federal FAQs for the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force were released. It provided greater clarity as to the importance of PrEP in ending the epidemic, and we're really encouraged by this recent development. We hope it will help to minimize the barriers of PrEP use going forward. Before I transition to other products, I just wanted to take a moment to share some perspective on the HIV treatment market, given the longer-than-expected pandemic impact. In regions outside of the U.S., such as Europe, we're beginning to see signs of recovery in the dynamic market, with second-quarter trends generally in line with our expectations. In the U.S., however, the pace of the pandemic recovery was slower than we expected in this last quarter, and while we're seeing signs of recovery in PrEP and some sequential growth in the treatment market, it's clear that it'll take several quarters for treatment to return to pre-pandemic levels. In treatment, there are really two pandemic-related headwinds that we observed. First, lower HIV screening and diagnosis resulting in lower treatment initiations. And second, due to the limited support services available during the pandemic, we've seen a higher number of patients discontinue their HIV treatments. Taken together, these two factors have reduced the number of active patients on HIV therapy entering 2021, thereby reducing the overall volume of new and refill prescriptions we would expect to see in 2021. We did, however, see growth resume from this lower base in the second quarter. After prior quarter-over-quarter declines, second-quarter U.S. HIV treatment prescriptions grew 2%, and we expect the market to grow at historical rates once screening and diagnosis rates return to pre-pandemic levels. To continue our efforts to advance progress against the HIV epidemic, we're partnering with healthcare professionals, advocacy groups, and policymakers to raise awareness of the unique challenges COVID-19 poses to HIV screening, diagnosis, and adherence. Our goal is to help healthcare providers ensure that patients continue to be diagnosed and treated. Given the strength of the demand fundamentals for Victarvi, Discovi for PrEP, and other Gilead HIV products, we remain confident in our competitive positioning now that many communities are easing social distancing requirements. In the meantime, we continue to see strength in underlying treatment demand with no material changes in the competitive landscape, with our total Gilead treatment market share holding steady at 75% in the U.S. and just under 50% in Europe, despite competition and the entry of new generics. Next on slide 10, HCV product sales in the second quarter were $549 million, up 23% compared to last year, but patient starts remain well below pre-pandemic levels. The growth reflects a modest sequential recovery in HCV patient starts in the U.S., in Q2 21, in addition to an artificially low Q2 of 20 that was impacted by unfavorable government rebate adjustments. We'll be watching for further signs of recovery in the third quarter. Both U.S. and E.U. Gilead market shares remain steady, 
at around 60% and 50% respectively. Moving to slide 11, HBV and HDV product sales were $237 million, up 8% year over year, with improving patient starts on Demlity, particularly in ex-U.S. markets. In its first full quarter as part of Gilead, Hepcludex contributed $7 million and is currently available in France, Germany, and Austria. We're excited to be working with the various reimbursement authorities to increase patient access and expect to secure full reimbursement in the major European markets in 2022. <coughs> Moving to Gidelvi on slide 12, product sales in the second quarter were $89 million, up 24% quarter over quarter, driven by demand for the two new indications approved in April, namely second-line plus metastatic triple negative breast cancer and urothelial cancer. We continue to be encouraged by the positive feedback from physicians on the phase three ascent data, which demonstrated a one-year medium overall survival benefit for second-line metastatic TNBC patients treated with Tordelby. To build on this growing interest, we're increasing community awareness, especially of the expanded indication to second-line in TNBC. And we expect to see growing demand as breast cancer screening ramps back up to pre-pandemic levels. IQVIA data suggests that breast cancer screening volumes were about 20% lower in the U.S. in 2020 compared to 2019. This suggests as many as 41,500 breast cancer patients have not been diagnosed during the pandemic. On behalf of Christy and the KITE team, I'm pleased to share a cell therapy commercial update on slide 13. Total cell therapy product sales totaled $219 million in the second quarter, representing 39% growth year-over-year, driven by both Yascarta and Takardas. Yascarta growth was driven by strong demand in Europe, as well as successful follicular lymphoma launch in the U.S. Increased competition, particularly in third-line LBCL, continues to raise the profile of cell therapy and is positive to kite overall. We remain confident in Yascarta's competitive profile and positioning and are particularly proud of Kite's industry-leading manufacturing turnaround time and reliability. Our result also reflected strong momentum from the Takardis mantle cell lymphoma launch, highlighting the unmet medical need for MCL patients. We continue to add new indications and geographies for our cell therapy products. For example, the Fosung Kite joint venture recently received approval in China for Yascarta as the first cell therapy to treat third-line LBCL. And we're excited to see the top-line data for Zuma 7, getting us a step closer to second-line LBCL cell therapy. Even as we prepare for discussions with regulatory agencies later this year, commercial and manufacturing preparations are ramping up to ensure sufficient capacity and support for second-line LBCL demand in both the U.S. and in Europe. Christy is here with the team to take your questions on cell therapy later in the call, but for now I'll hand it over to Murdad to walk us through the pipeline updates. Thank you, Joanna. As Dan mentioned, it's been a gratifying year so far, delivering on all our key pipeline commitments, supporting Gilead's ambitions to extend our leadership in HIV, and creating a broader portfolio spanning virology and oncology, and building our portfolio in inflammation. I'll spend our time today on the highlights of the quarter and point you to the appendix of the earnings presentation for a more complete view of our pipeline activities. First, in HIV, as you can see on slide 15, programs for our investigational lenacapavir uh, agent continue to progress. At the recent International AIDS Society meeting, we shared data from the Phase 2-3 Capella study that evaluated heavily treatment-experienced individuals who've already developed resistance to multiple antiretroviral drugs. Capella demonstrated lenacapavir's potency in this difficult-to-treat population. Despite significant prior resistance, antiviral activity was observed starting at day 15. By week 26, 81% of individuals had viral suppression when lenacapavir was combined with an optimized background regimen. Based on these data, we filed a new drug application. If approved, this would become the first six-month-long acting subcutaneous injection regimen available and deliver a welcome new option for people living with HIV who have developed multidrug resistance to other antiretrovirals. Also at IAS, we presented strong interim results from the Phase two Calibrate study evaluating lenacapavir in a treatment-naive population. In Calibrate, participants received lenacapavir either as a subcutaneous injection or as a daily oral pill in combination with the SCOBY. At week 28, 94% of subjects achieved HIV-1 RNA loads of less than 50 copies per mil. 
These findings will be used to help inform our broader efforts establishing lenacapavir as a foundational agent for our long-acting franchise. Late last month, we screened the first patient for the Phase three Purpose two trial, studying lenacapavir for HIV prevention in cisgender men, transgender women, transgender men, and gender non-binary people who have sex with men and are at risk of HIV infection. We expect to initiate the Phase three Purpose one study of lenacapavir for HIV prevention in adolescent girls and young women later this year. Finally, we're actively working on a co-formulation uh, for the long-acting investigational oral and injectable combination of lenacapavir and islatravir, and expect to initiate the oral Phase two trial by the end of the year. Moving on to HDV on slide 16, last month at the International Liver Congress, we presented data from the MIR-301 and MIR-204 programs. MIR-301 is a Phase three registrational study evaluating bulevertide as monotherapy for the treatment of HDV. Interim results demonstrated that bulevertide was well-tolerated in both cirrhotic and non-cirrhotic patients with compensated chronic HDV infections. At week 24, bulevertide treatment was associated with significantly greater HDV RNA declines and improvements in biochemical measures of disease activity compared to no treatment. Moreover, there were no treatment-related serious adverse events leading to discontinuation. These results continue to support the effectiveness of the 2-milligram dose which has received conditional approval from the EMA and will form the basis of the BLA filing plan for later this year in the U.S. As part of our HDV cure efforts, we also presented interim data from the MIR-204 Phase 2B study investigating finite regimens of bulevertide both as monotherapy and in combination with PEG interferon alpha. Both monotherapy and combination treatments of bulevertide were found to be generally well-tolerated and more effective than PEG interferon alone through 24 weeks of therapy. The primary endpoint analysis occurs at 24 weeks after completion of therapy and includes virologic and biochemical response data. We look forward to sharing those data when available. Moving to slide 17, on, and on behalf of Christy and the Kite team, as you know, we shared this earlier the strong positive top-line data from Zuma 7, the landmark 359 patient phase three study evaluating Yaskarta and second-line LBCL. The study met the primary endpoint for event-free survival with a hazard ratio of 0.398, representing a 60% improvement in event-free survival compared to standard-of-care stem cell transplant. Yaskarta had a safety profile comparable to or better than what we have seen in the third-line setting. This is a clinically and statistically meaningful improvement in outcomes that, if approved in the U.S., could extend Escarta's reach to a total unique population of 14,000 patients annually in the second and third line LBCL setting. Zuma 7 also met the key secondary endpoint of objective response rate. As expected, data for overall survival is immature at this time, but the interim analysis suggests a favorable trend in this critical milestone. In summary, we're very excited about the potential benefit to patients demonstrated in Zuma 7 and look forward to beginning discussions with regulatory agencies later this year as we work towards potential SBLA and the MAA filings for Yaskarta and second-line LBCL. And separately, we're on track for the Phase two readouts for our first-line LBCL study before the end of the year. Beyond LBCL, we've completed filing Yaskarta with the EMA for patients with follicular lymphoma after three or more lines of systemic therapy. We also have a PADUPA date of October 1st under accelerated review with the FDA for Tocardis and ALL. And of course, while our internal focus remains on autologous cell therapies, we continue our engagement in alternative approaches, most recently par partnering with Shoreline Biosci Biosciences to develop novel off-the-shelf allogeneic cell therapies based on natural killer targets for hematologic cancers. Slide 18 is a recap of our pipeline execution so far this year. In addition to the items we've discussed already, our partner ARC has provided an early interim update of their Phase two ARC-7 trial in late June, demonstrating clinical activity in the anti-tigit donvanilumab-based doublet and triplet combinations. Zimbarelumab, our anti-PD-1 antibody, saw similar levels of activity in the monotherapy arm compared to marketed anti-PD-1s. Based on the interim analysis, we're pleased that ARC-7 and the confirmatory Phase three ARC-10 trial will continue to enroll as planned. We look forward to seeing how the data mature with additional patients and duration of follow-up to inform our opt-in decision.
Separately, our partner Galapagos also shared data readouts from their Toledo SICK 2-3 programs across psoriasis, ulcerative colitis, and rheumatoid arthritis, and the plaque psoriasis data from their TIC2 program. Both studies were early and had small samples, and we look forward to additional data. We also remain focused on the following upcoming milestones. For Tredelvi, we continue to target a Tropix 2 PFS readout this year. This study is an event-driven phase 3 trial in patients with hormone receptor positive HER2-negative metastatic breast cancer. Pending data, we will evaluate and determine the appropriate regulatory next steps. We estimate there are roughly 17,000 patients in the U.S. who could benefit from Tredelvi in this setting. We continue to expect the Phase 3 non-small cell lung cancer for Tredelvi to initiate in the second half of this year. We plan to share an update from the Tropics 3 basket study on lung cancer later this year, and we'll separately provide updates on head and neck squamous cell carcinoma and endometrial cancer as those data mature. We anticipate a Phase 1B readout from Mangrolimab and MDS later this year, and pending data, we'll engage with regulators as we explore potential BLA filing for accelerated approval. If approved, megrolimab will be the first-in-class macrophage checkpoint inhibitor targeting CD47 and Gilead's first frontline oncology indication. There's a significant unmet need for MDS with no new treatments approved in 14 years, despite 15,000 new patients being diagnosed each year in the U.S. alone. We continue our development efforts in AML and have enrolled our first patient in the Phase 3 frontline AML megrolimab study. Before I wrap up the pipeline discussion, I wanted to share an update on remdesivir. We've decided not to move forward with an inhaled formulation of remdesivir based on the results of our initial proof of concept study, suggesting suboptimal lung deposition. To address patient needs in the evolving pandemic, we are continuing our efforts on advancing multiple novel antivirals. We expect to submit IND filings later this year or early next year for these agents. Remain committed to supporting patients through this pandemic and continuing our legacy of developing antiviral therapeutics for the treatment of emerging diseases. Finally, on slide 19, I want to recognize the teams at Gilead and Kite. Compared to just two years ago, our pipeline has grown from 30 clinical stage programs to over 50 today and resulted in a considerably more diverse set of assets that can be transformative not only for patients, but for Gilead. The Gilead and Kite teams have worked tirelessly to deliver on our pipeline programs during this time of dramatic growth, despite the pandemic. It's a thrilling time to be part of the team with tireless dedication and commitment to helping patients. I look forward to updating you on our progress in the quarters ahead. With that, I'll hand the call over to Andy to walk us through the financial results of the quarter. Thank you, Merdad, and good afternoon, everyone. Moving to slide 21. Our financial results in the second quarter were solid overall, with total product sales up 21% year-over-year, given the important role Veclury continues to play in this pandemic. Excluding Veclury, total product sales grew 5% year-over-year, with strong Victarvi growth more than offsetting lower Truvada and AAAA revenues, in addition to impressive growth in cell therapy and, of course, the new revenue contribution associated with Tradelvi, which was not part of our portfolio in the second quarter of last year. Moving down the P&L, non-GAAP product gross margin was 86.4% in the second quarter, 210 basis points higher year-over-year and primarily associated with a lower royalty expense. Non-GAAP R&D was $1.1 billion, down 9% year-over-year, with lower remdesivir-related investments as compared to the same period last year, partly offset by higher investments across our pipeline, notably Tradelvi and Mabrolimab. Non-GAAP SG&A expense was $1.1 billion, down 4% year-over-year, primarily due to lower legal expenses, offset in part by continued commercial investment in Tradelvi and Beckler outside the United States. Moving to tax, we realized a lower effective tax rate of 19.6% for the quarter, or down 320 basis points year-over-year, due to a shift in geographic earnings mix. Overall, our non-GAAP diluted earnings per share was $1.87 per share in the second quarter of 2021, compared to $1.11 for the same period last year. The year-over-year improvement primarily reflects higher product sales due to Veclury, higher gross margin, as well as lower operating expenses and a lower effective tax rate offset by lower interest income. 
Overall, we're encouraged by our first half results shown on slide 22. Moving to slide 23, you can see that we are updating our guidance for 2021. As always, the duration and magnitude of the COVID-19 pandemic continue to be uncertain, and the rate and degree of these pandemic impacts, as well as the corresponding recovery from the pandemic, may vary across our business. With that said, we now expect full-year total product sales in the range of $24.4 billion to $25 billion, compared to our previous range of 23.7 to 25.1 billion dollars. The new range increases the midpoint from 24.4 billion to 24.7 billion and reflects our solid results year to date as well as our updated expectations for the second half of the year. With first half Veclory revenue of 2.3 billion dollars, we now expect full year Veclory revenue in the range of 2.7 to 3.1 billion dollars compared to our previous 2 to 3 billion dollar range. Our updated range reflects the ongoing role of Veclory in this pandemic and assumes we'll continue to see regional outbreaks. The situation continues to be dynamic and we'll likely update our thinking again when we report our earnings after the third quarter. Back to our guidance, we now expect total product sales excluding Veclory for the year to be in the range of 21.7 billion US dollars to 21.9 billion dollars compared to our previous range of 21.7 to 22.1 billion. This tightening of the range reflects the longer-than-expected pandemic impact on our business, including the latest increase in COVID-19 cases. As Joanna discussed, the pandemic has most notably impacted our HIV treatment business, where we saw substantially fewer treatment initiations and a greater number of discontinuations than expected in 2020. It's taking longer than we expected for treated patient volume to ramp back up to more normal levels, particularly in the United States. That said, we saw encouraging signs of recovery in the HIV market in the second quarter, and our guidance assumes recovery will continue through the remainder of the year. Based on market share dynamics, we remain very confident in our competitive positioning, and we believe we're well positioned as the recovery continues. Looking at the rest of our P&L, we now expect non-GAAP product gross margin in the range of 86 to 87 percent, reflecting a lower mix of HIV revenue. We now expect non-GAAP R&D to decline low to mid-single-digit percentage compared to 2020 levels. This primarily reflects the timing of investments, and we remind you that the expenses in both R&D and SG&A are back-end loaded this year, increasing sequentially from Q2 into Q3 and then even more from Q3 into Q4. Our non-GAAP SG&A guidance remains unchanged, a flat to low single-digit percentage decline over 2020. In R&D, we'll be ramping up additional studies with Magrolimab, Tridelvi, long-acting combination work with lenacapavir for the treatment of HIV, and other pipeline activities. And in SGNA, we will be ramping up marketing activities to support our growing portfolio of indications, such as with Tridelvi and Tocardis. Finally, reflecting the updates to our revenue, gross margin, and operating expense guidance, we now project non-GAAP diluted EPS between $6.90 per share and $7.25 per share for the year, and GAAP diluted EPS between $4.70 and $5.05. Additionally, our capital allocation priorities have not changed, and we remain committed to our dividend. Year-to-date, we've paid down $1.25 billion, uh, $1 billion in debt, and we're on track to repay at least $4 billion in debt by the end of the year. With that, I'll invite the operator to begin the question and answer session. Thank you. As a reminder, to ask a question, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. To withdraw your question, press the pound key. In the interest of time, we ask that you please limit yourself to one question. Please stand by while we compile the Q&A roster. Our first question comes from Corey Kasimov with J.P. Morgan. Your line is open. Hi, this is Gavin on for Corey. Uh, thanks for taking our question. Just wanted to go back to the U.S. HIV business. Uh, can you provide additional color, particularly in the context of why this is so much different from the ex-U.S. markets? And what is the most important factor you'll be watching for to have confidence in the U.S. market normalizing? Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot, Gavin, for joining. I'm obviously going to turn that over to Joanna. I just point out that we continue to do uh, really well in our share and certainly the Tarvey growth. And, uh, you know, uh, we'll, are well positioned as the market rebounds. And with that, I'll turn it over to Joanna for some specifics. Thanks. 
Hi, Gavin. Um, thanks for your question. I, I think from a market dynamic standpoint, what we're seeing um, is we saw a little bit last year in Q2, most of the industry was actually slowing down pretty quickly in Q2. HIV took a little bit longer, and it's it's kind of that playing out in 21 is taking a little bit longer to come back and bounce back. One of the major reasons for that has to do with your dynamic market being much smaller in this market. You have a very large pool of patients that are just continuing patients, and you're really playing in the dynamic market with your naive um, patients coming in um, and your switches and your restarts really around 5% or so. And so that's why it's taking a little bit longer as, as we're going through this. From a different standpoint between U.S. and Europe, I think it has more to do with the fact that in Europe there's diversity across um, some of the different countries as to the pandemics and the timing of um, kind of the recoveries or even some of the surges that happen. So it's a little bit more blended than what we've seen in the U.S. thus far. And so I think that's just what's playing out here. Obviously, the bigger impact being in the U.S. because that's where most of our business lies in HIV. Um, and, and just to close out on that, the, um, that's from a market standpoint, and it's very different than kind of the fundamentals of our HIV business. I, I think what we've seen with Bictarvi, um, we're really quite quite pleased with in light of the fact that not only it's grown quarter over quarter by one point, both in the U.S. as well as in the EU5, but also if you think about it over the last 12 months, it's grown six-point share over a very strong base. We're just under 40%. We're at 39% uh, share at this point in time. So we're very pleased with the continued growth of Victarvi, and you can appreciate that because it's such a larger base that's going to get more challenging as we move forward, and, and that's why um, – I think we're excited about the market coming back a little bit. We've seen it come back in Q2. Um, where the market goes, obviously our HIV business goes because we own 75% of the market. And uh, and so, therefore, we're watching that very closely. But we would expect that recovery to continue, although at a slower pace than we had originally expected. That's great, Joanna. Anything on the indicators? Uh, I think you mentioned is there anything more on the indicators that you'll be looking for? Yeah, so we've been looking, of course, at the HIV screening and the diagnosis. Um, in um, and how that's playing out, and we're still under by about 13% to uh, below pre-COVID levels. So I think once those come back up, I think that would be that would be something that we're watching very closely. And also the drop-off rates. We talked a little bit in um, earlier about the the adherence piece of the puzzle because you have um, you have less patient support groups around. You have less around sound around those HIV patients. You have a lot of those case managers and physicians that have moved over to treat COVID-19 and so far impacting HIV a little bit dis disproportionately. And so we're also looking at those drop-offs, and we've seen those drop-offs come back to normal, to pre-COVID levels just most recently. And so that's another positive sign to that recovery of the market. And, Gavin, obviously just from a patient perspective, we're, we have been and will continue to be dedicated to helping patients, particularly in underserved communities, get back into the care system. I think that's something that Gilead prides itself on, and that's exceptionally important as a leader in HIV medicine to make sure we are always on the side of the patients as we, as we emerge from this pandemic. So thanks for the question, Gavin. Thank you. Our next question comes from Terrence Flynn with Goldman Sachs. Your line is open. Great. Uh, thanks so much for taking the question. Maybe a two-part for me. First, uh, for Joanna, just wondering if you can provide any more insight on the Tradelvi launch, specifically the split of sales by either uh, setting or indication. And then for Murdad, can you remind us of the size of the lung cancer cohort in Tropics 3? And then how are you thinking about the potential risk of ILD in that population? Thank you. Thanks, Terrence. Yeah, go ahead, Joanna. Sure. Thanks for the question. Um, so, yeah, so we're really pleased with the Trevi sales. I had 24% growth quarter over quarter, I think, uh, is a very strong quarter, and I think that really has to do with the approval, the second-line plus approval that we got in metastatic triple negative breast cancer early um, April. It's also related to the fact that because now we have the full approval, we have the opportunity to promote the incredible overall survival data that we have with the ascent data. And so that's been a big piece of the puzzle. Um, if you're asking me to split the sales per line of therapy, that's very challenging in light of the claims data that we that 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 we have. Um, but what I would say, if it's more about, you know, bladder cancer versus triple negative breast cancer, I would say most of that is triple negative breast cancer, probably about a 90-10 ratio as our um, bladder cancer is much smaller, although we've done some nice inroads there already and are looking at about um, just under 10% share in bladder right now um, 
with Tradelby, so we're excited about that as well. And then with Tropics 3, it's a, it's a basket study. So um, the, the ends per um, arm are not, you know, hard and fast. Uh, we'll probably be looking at data once we get to the, you know, the 2030 range in, in there, but it's not predetermined. Uh, so, you know, I wouldn't want to uh, overstate it. Regarding ILD, we are definitely um, very sensitive to and watching for it. As you can imagine, uh, to date, we haven't had any reports of that, but uh, we're ever vigilant. So, Great. Thank you both. Um, let's, thanks, Terrence. We'll get to the next question now, please. Thank you. Our next question comes from Brian Abrahams with RBC Capital Markets. Your line is open. Uh, hey, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my question. Uh, question regarding HIV life cycle. Um, you recently reported data uh, for uh, sub-Q lenacapavir-based combo and treatment naive HIV. Um, I'm curious, how do the learnings there with respect to the resistance profile you're observing shape how you think about the future development steps vis-a-vis uh, -vis potentially exploring higher doses, more frequently, uh, more frequent than every six months injections, uh, and or combining with agents that might have higher intrinsic barrier resistance versus FTAP. And then I guess along the lines of, of HIV life cycle, I'm also curious your level of confidence uh, as to the potential of FTAP to have exclusivity beyond 2025. Thanks. Great. Uh, why don't we have you start, Murdad, sure. and perhaps um, Andy can comment a little bit on the on the second piece too. Yeah, thanks. It's a, it's a very good question. I think um, if you think about the patients in that trial, these are highly treatment experienced patients who um, often develop resistance because of noncompliance. And when um, these uh, subjects are getting uh, a sub-Q injection of lenacapavir, um, remember that these patients are going to go, potentially continue to go off and on their oral regimens. As we think about the future, um, as you know, we are, for treatment, um, going outside the high, highly treatment experienced population, we're really thinking about how we're going to combine lenacapavir with other long-acting agents, like eslatrovir. Um, and as we do so, I think the concerns about patients potentially having um, effective monotherapy with lenacapavir uh, uh, go away in, in some regards, right? Ensuring that patients are are taking multiple agents at the same time is going to be really important for us. Thanks for that. And, and perhaps, uh, Andy, you want to comment on the exclusivity question for Brian? Sure. I'd be happy to. Hi, Brian. Thanks for the question. Um, as you know, um, the litig there's litigation that's underway. There were some recent developments that a, a number of analysts wrote about. Um, you know, our base case continues to be that there that um, there will be generics uh, arriving in 2025 and 2026 in the U.S. and EU, respectively. Um, but we think we have a strong case, and that there um, we look forward to continuing to um, to prosecute um, the case, and we'll see where it plays out. We should have an additional update later this year. So that's really where it stands. Thanks, Annie. Can we have the next question, please? Thank you. As a reminder, in the interest of time, we ask that you please limit yourself to one question. Our next question comes from Jeffrey Porges with SDB Link. Your line is open. Thank you very much for taking the question. Um, so just a couple of parts in my question. Could you clarify a couple of your partnerships? Um, there's been some news from Galapagos. You've invested over $5 billion there. Are you going to take on any of those drugs from the Toledo portfolio that the company recently highlighted? And then related to that, your Arcus partnership, um, does your guidance include the mild upfront cost of opting in for any of those programs? And what's the trigger and the window for when you can opt in um, to any of those three programs? Because they sort of appear on your pipeline slide, but it's not completely clear whether they're in or out. So could you clarify where you're going with those two partnerships? Sure, Jeff. Thank you very much for the question. And I'll start a little bit and then ask uh, Murdad and Andy if you want to add anything as well. So I think first and foremost, I think we're, you know, um, we, we, we believe deeply in partnerships. Uh, you know, we have a robust internal portfolio and we also, as you know, have designed these opt-ins as a way to expand our portfolio in different therapeutic areas. Starting with Galapagos, as you know, which was predominantly focused on inflammation. Um, uh, you know, at this stage, um, 
we don't have any opt-in uh, on milestones right now with Galapagos. We're working closely with them on their science and their discovery platform and some of their preclinical to clinical molecules uh, to support them in their efforts. But at this stage, uh, we don't have anything more to report other than what Galapagos has reported on the, for instance, uh, Jeff, to your question on the Toledo program. But rest assured that as those programs evolve and mature and develop, uh, we'll keep you informed. Uh, perhaps, uh, Merdad, if you want to say anything else on Galapagos and then bridge to Arcus. Yeah, I think, I think the, the stories are similar. They, we, we like to keep, um, uh, you apprised of what, uh, could potentially come into our portfolio and we have the opt-in rights to, um, for uh, Arcus, I mean, I, I think Dan laid out Galapagos well. For Arcus, we continue to wait for data to mature, uh, and once the data get to a level of maturity where we can really make the call, uh, that's when we'll have our uh, our opt-in. We have not included, and Dan, Andy will Andy will confirm for me, but we have not included the financials of a potential opt-in in in our guidance at this point. Andy, that's around. correct. Yeah, no, I'm happy to, to follow up here, Jeff. Good question. Um, and um, nothing has changed from the guidance at the beginning of the year. So our, our R&D spend and all of our expense guidance does not include the opt-ins on any of the programs that we have options to, including the three programs that you mentioned at, at Arcus. You also asked about the opt-in windows. The, um, the opt-in window for the, the first digit antibody um, should be coming um, most likely at the end of this year. It could be early next year, but it's most likely at the end of this year. We'll have enough patient data uh, to trigger the opt-in or, or our desire to opt-in potentially early. Um, on the other two programs, the adenosine programs at Arcus, that's most likely next year. And again, there may be additional data that comes this year that, that if it looks really strong, um, we want to move as quickly as we can. And we can opt-in early, Jeff, on those programs. And then on Toledo, it's relatively simple. And all of the Galapagos programs, the opt-in comes after phase two enabling studies, so the Toledo programs are a long ways away from a potential opt-in decision. Phase three enabling studies. Yeah, I'm sorry, phase three enabling, thank you. Jeff, right. um, so, and I just, I just kind of round out your question. I mean, there's obviously many other partnerships we have that we're working closely with at different phases, but those are the specific ones you asked about. Thank you very much for the question. Can we have the next question, please? Thank you. Our next question comes from Jeff Meacham with Bank of America. Your line is open. Great. Uh, afternoon, guys. Uh, thanks for taking the question. Uh, a question for Dan or, uh, or Murtad, Murtad on COVID. You know, there's a high expectation that vaccines are here for a while now that the Delta variant has, has really changed the dynamic. The question is, has the strategic value of Vectory changed for you guys as new cases have ticked up? I know you decided not to pursue inhaled, but is there you know, a life cycle here worth investing in over the long term. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. I'll start, and then my dad will either correct me or add more information to it. But I think, I mean, just to just to uh, just to emphasize uh, uh, the importance of uh, Gilead's legacy in antivirals, and, and frankly, our strength in that too to us as well. So. You know, being, of course, the first company to have and the only company to have an approved antiviral for um, for COVID is no accident. Obviously, it's decades of experience, decades of investments in a variety of emerging viruses, including COVID. And we haven't stopped. Uh, so, uh, you know, to your point, Jeff, I think we're all learning about this pandemic as it rolls out. Uh, and uh, it's certainly, you know, uh, going through different phases. And we think we'll continue to go through different phases. Uh, and therefore, we are, um, if you like, kind of doubling down on an ability to think about antivirals outside the hospital setting where a remdesivir plays such an important role. And maybe with that, I'll hand it over to Merdad uh, as a clinician, how you might also see the future of the pandemic and then also our role in it. Yeah, thanks. Um, I think we have, I think, pretty, been pretty consistently of the mindset that um, uh, the vaccines will uh, will make a, a, a tremendous impact in um, the case numbers and those sorts of things. Uh, even though I, I think it, even when we get to some sort of equilibrium, unfortunately, they'll continue to be, we believe, infections. People will continue to get infected, and some proportion of those uh, patients will end up in the hospital. Um, so uh, we do believe that uh, Viclury in the hospitalized setting is um, is going to be continue to be really important for treating those patients. 
And as Dan alluded to, we continue to believe and, and are committed to um, treatments, making treatments available in the outpatient setting. Um, so I wouldn't, uh, you know, the, the uh, inhaled uh, nebulized uh, approach, you know, didn't give us the results we were hoping for, the consistency we were looking for. But because we have uh, other agents in our pipeline uh, based on our, our virology expertise, we will be bringing those forward and, uh, and really focusing on, on the outpatient setting there. So uh, we continue to believe that um, having a treatment available for people, um, whether they're vaccinated or not, is going to be important for the foreseeable future. And, Jeff, what I might add uh, is that, you know, our preclinical folks continue to study remdesivir against a variety of variants. In fact, all four major variants of concern, so the alpha from the UK, the beta from South Africa, the gamma from Brazil, and the delta from India, uh, and all are fully sensitive, uh, a, 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 you know, against uh, or, or, or remdesivir is, is, is as sensitive uh, against all those strains, which would make sense because we're not seeing any mutations in the polymerase uh, remdesivir binding site. Uh, and so I think it's important as we think about, you know, next generation products to also think about medicines that um, will uh, be, be effective against these ongoing variants uh, like remdesivir. It's, a, it's an important bar for us as we move forward. Thanks, Jeff, for the question. Thank you. Our next question comes from Umar Rafat with Evercore. Your line is open. Hi, guys. Thank you for taking my question. I had two quick ones as well. First, have you had an interim PFS on the HR positive study of Tadelvi? Um, and secondly, um, congrats on Bill Grossman's hire from Arcus. And I was wondering, to what extent was the decision of Bill bring on board uh, driven exclusively by uh, Bill's familiarity with Arcus programs? Thank you very much. Yeah, well, why don't you start? Sure. Uh, yeah, thanks, thanks, Uber. Um, uh, great questions. Yeah, we have not done the interim PFS uh, analysis as we've talked about. That'll that'll happen um, certainly before the end of the year, we hope. Um, and uh, we're that's still what we're tracking to, but we have not done the analysis yet. Um, so uh, we remain blinded to those data. And then in terms of Bill, um, you know, I think. Um, I wouldn't necessarily tie it as, as you're suggesting to Arcus. It's certainly an advantage for us that should we opt in to Arcus programs, Bill will bring familiarity. But, um, you know, for us, Bill's experience uh, and leadership uh, and uh, his excitement about being here and overseeing the overall portfolio were the drivers for Bill coming on board. Yeah, and I would just add, Umar, I mean, look, many of us know Bill. <laughs> you know him as well. Uh, you know, our relationship uh, with Arcus is extremely important and continues to be. And this was an example of Bill uh, seeing a career opportunity and seeing an evolution for his career that made sense for him. Uh, we certainly uh, want to make sure that uh, uh, Arcus continues to, to uh, have the skill set that it needs to be successful. We have the skill set that we need to be successful. I think it's just a good example of, of, of how partners collaborate at times. And so um, I just wanted to emphasize our, our relationship with Arcus is unchanged and as strong as ever. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Michael Yee with Jeffries. Your line is open. Uh, hey, thanks for the question. Appreciate it. Um, maybe a question for Murdad on Tradelvi, a couple parts. Um, in the Tropics 2 study, you had the, the smart decision to take a look at that, enlarge it, powered for PFS, et cetera. Did you have any information that could help give you confidence around the powering and, and any information that would help you give confidence in your overall study, such as the number of events that have passed or anything like that, or even knowing that it had passed a futility, if you could even comment on that? And then on the lung data that's coming up, can you just comment around your uh, belief in the profile versus the competitor? Is it similar efficacy, better safety, or how should we interpret that data when it comes later this year? Thank you. Nice to hear your voice, Michael. Over to you, Murda. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Uh, on the um, on the Tropics 2 study, um, you know, we have not done a futility analysis. Um, we are um, – we are we continue to look to those data uh maturing and getting getting the number of events that we need for uh for the PFS analysis that that we have planned um 
we're, we're pretty confident in our powering, and uh, in particular since we expanded the, um, the sample size to make sure that we are, are able to hit um, uh, the PFS endpoint. Of course, the relevant issue is more um, the duration of PFS that we get, but uh, from a powering standpoint, we're, we're comfortable um, and it's just a matter of seeing those data. From an, from an ongoing event standpoint, I think we, we are where we thought we would be at this point, and it's really around just uh, letting the events um, come in, make sure they get adjudicated, um, we clean the data in time to do the analysis properly. So that, that's where we are with that. And then um, in terms of the lung data uh, on uh, efficacy, yeah, I mean, I think, as I think we've said before, we're really proceeding, you know, somewhat at risk and pretty aggressively, partly based on our belief in the drug, partly because of what um, what we've seen with other agents uh, in lung, our, and partly based on our early data that, that you're familiar with in, in lung uh, that we've seen. Of course, we want to make those data more robust uh, while we go into the phase three world. So we are going to augment our existing data to make sure that we are we are um, mitigating our risk somewhat. But um, thus far, I think what we are hoping for is efficacy um, that certainly is uh, comparable to uh, what the benchmark might be, uh, even though I think um, it's too early to say what that benchmark is with the, with the direct competitor. But we are, again, I think, confident about our ability to bring um, safety profile that, that hopefully will uh, be better for patients. Excellent. Thank you, Michael. Can, can we have the next question, please? Thank you. Our next question comes from Alicia Young with Cantor. Your line is open. Hey, guys. Thanks for taking my question. I'm just curious about, um, again, going back to the ARCUS collaboration with ARC7, how do you think about what the hurdle is for a triple? Do you think that it has to be more than like, you know, some of the competitors right. like Rochap and the double thing. Thanks, Lisa. We're done. Yeah. You know, I think uh, we have the, the luxury of being able to look at the uh, singlet, a doublet, and a, and a triple here. Um, we would be, of course, excited if the triplet differentiates from the doublet and provides better efficacy. That, I think that's what we'd be looking for. Um, and so as the data mature, uh, looking for um, some some signal, some um, uh, a reason to believe that the triplet is performing uh, more robustly than than the doublet is probably going to be our our focus. We'd be very excited if that plays out. Uh, it gives us a, a I think a pretty unique position. Thanks, Alicia. So I think we have time for one more question. And thanks everybody for your involvement. So the last question, please. Thank you. And the last question comes from Ronnie Gal with Bernstein. Your line is open. Hi, everybody, and thanks for squeezing me in. A uh, question about the uh, projections for HIV for the next couple of years. Um, part one, I guess, is you change your reimbursement policy on 340B clinics next year. Yeah, how big, essentially, was, is that difference in terms of what it creates for you? And where will the PLA, whether the PR on revenue or on, on SGNA? And the second one, you, you already mentioned the PrEP uh, uh, barriers are dropping with preventative uh, treatment designation for PrEP. Um, I, I can't figure out if this is good or bad for you from the perspective of uh, branded drug adoption, uh, given that they don't have to cover branded drugs. Thanks, Ronnie. So over to you, Joanna. Sure. Ronnie, I'm assuming you're talking about the patient assistance program changes? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so I want to differentiate that. Those aren't 340B changes. That, that's actually um, a program that's really in line with our commitment to help end the HIV epidemic. Um, to date, the program's actually provided free drug to more than 250,000 individuals. Um, and really, that's what it is. It's a free program that was always intended and will continue to provide free Gilead medication to eligible individuals to treat and prevent HIV. Unfortunately, it was not intended to be a source of funding for organizations to deliver services. And that's what we're, we're trying to to reset a little bit. So the changes to our program model will pro will protect our ability to be able to do this in the longer term and make it a sustainable program um, for us um, and more importantly for patients. So that's the patient assistance program on that front. Um, the, the question you're asking me about PrEP, we're, we're actually quite encouraged with um, 
the the FAQ that came out from the U.S. Uh, PSTF. The and here's why. In the FAQ, they provide a lot more clarity than they had in the past, right? This isn't new. The recommendation actually came out, the Affordable Care Act recommendation came out two years ago. Um, but what this provided was actually more details to it and clarity on the importance of PrEP in ending the epidemic um, and minimizing the barriers of use. And there's a couple of things in the FAQ that pop out for me. One is it truly supports physician and patient choice, and that's the piece where generics or non-generics, right, so Travada generics or Discovy would then need to be um, really they, the, the physicians and the patients get to decide together what is the right medicine for which patient. And, of course, with the bone and renal safety um, benefits that Discovy brings, I, I think this is a great um, addition to, to the FAQs. In addition to that, there's also um, some guidance around timely management of um, of the, the request for this by payers, so to turn it around within 24 hours, which is quite different than what's happening today. And then the last piece is $0 of out-of-pocket costs. So I think for patients, this is great news, and I also think for patient choice and physician choice, this is uh, quite promising as well. Ronnie, I want to make sure we, we covered your question. Did, did, we, did we understand you correctly? I, so. I, I assume so, Ronnie. Great. Uh, well, thank you all very much. So thank you all for joining us today. We appreciate your continued interest in Gilead and look forward to updating you on our progress. This concludes today's conference call. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect.